John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 559.PR2006, certificate number 24139. Hachiko. Fry, what's wrong? Think about it. Seymour lived a full life after I was gone. I had Seymour till he was three. That's when I knew him, and that's when I loved him. I'll never forget him, but he forgot me a long, long time ago. have a dog john i don't know this about you did you grow up with a dog uh we had a couple of dogs we had my favorite dog was a dog named barney nice uh that we i think my mom's boyfriend bobby adopted barney at the midway drive-in swap meet <laughs> either barney was in a box that said free or barney just ambled up to bobby and bobby thought that barney needed a new home the middle of the 20th century was the golden age of just baby animals coming out of cardboard boxes yeah. in front of the quick shop. This would have been 1975 or six. Uh, Barney arrived in my life. He was a kind of like pit bull Labrador mix. He was a wonderful dog. He and I were very close. And then Barney ran away. Oh. And uh, several months later, a girl came up to me in what would have been, I guess, third grade and she was like one of the pretty girls in my class. And she said, I understand you lost your dog. And I said, I did. And she said, I think we may have your dog. Whoa. So Barney was uh, helping you meet women. Well, not exactly. Because she said, come over to my house after school. And I went home with her. Um, she lived very far away from my neighborhood like unusually in a different direction. She said Barney showed up at her house. So for Barney to have made this journey, it was like... It was a Disney movie. A Disney movie to get over across busy streets and through neighborhoods to her house. And when I arrived, it was Barney. And Barney ran away from me. Oh. Not only ran away from me, but I was calling to him. And he got a car between us 
And if I went around one side of the car, he went around the other side, very definitely communicating that he was happier where he was. And she and I both were like, I mean, she was embarrassed and I was embarrassed. I mean, we're third graders, but the import of this was not lost on either of us. The awkwardness of the situation. Super awkward. And I was like, it's Barney, but he seems to not want to come with me. And this was like heartbreaking to me. I mean, it's not like we abused Barney. Barney and I spent hours together. The old fishing hole. But I believe that it was, I don't know, maybe they gave Barney goldfish snacks or I, I don't know what. Bar, maybe Barney was allowed in the house at their place and Barney wasn't allowed in the house at our place. He, was, he lived in a dog house. It sounds like you're someone who's going to be skeptical about the innate <clears throat> loyalty and fidelity of, of the dog as man's best friend. Is that why you never had, have you had a dog as an adult? Well, then we had a second dog. My mom bought me another dog. Oh no, I'm sorry. They found another dog in a cardboard box somewhere. This dog was named Trouble. <laughs> and Trouble never bonded with me. That's my uh, middle name, by the way. I know it is. Trouble dug holes under the fence and was always trying to get out. And I never had much of a, uh, emotional relationship with trouble. And I think one time he dug under the fence and got out and when nobody ever looked for him again, then my mom raised Borzois, but Borzois are sight hounds and they never bonded with me either. I, we had a Borzoi named, uh, uh, Gibson and Gibson, just all Gibson wanted to do was eat spaghetti you know, you would hug Gibson and he just would pull away. If you did just, not have spaghetti literally on your face. Yeah. So no, I do not have really any experience bonding with a dog where that bond was reciprocated <laughs> throughout our lives or anything like that. I mean, Barney broke my heart and every other dog was just like, nah, I might as well have just called it dog. You always had so much canine love to give and, uh, mm. It never, if they don't come back, they're not yours to begin with, I and, guess. And, and I think so. I, I became a cat person. What about you? Were you a dog owner? We had yappy terriers when I was a kid. Uh, the best kind. And then when my son was born, he grew up with a dog the same age as him, which is a nightmare because you're trying to figure out a puppy and a newborn at the same time. Isn't that dog a yappy terrier? No, that was Banjo, oh. Golden Lab Mix. Did oh. you ever meet Banjo? Ah, beautiful, huge, 110-pound. Maybe when I came, when I, you and I met, Banjo was in his declining years. He would have been in his declining years, yeah. although they eventually took out a tumor the, literally the size of a beach volleyball from his spleen, and he lived another three years. I guess I did meet him, but he, he, just, he was like basically an Ottoman by that point, right? <laughs> he never really got up off the ground. He was an Ottoman that shed all over the real Ottoman. <laughs> that dog had so much hair. But it was the same kind of thing where, you know, we loved Banjo to death. And to this day, my um, daughter gets a little weepy when she thinks about Aww, Banjo. Poor Banjo. We have a little oil painting of, of Banjo. Um, and now you have a purse dog. Yeah. My wife has a little uh, Cavapoo. It's a Spaniel Poodle mix. It's like like, what if Miss Piggy's dog was, like, a little more effeminate? 30% more effeminate. Uh, yeah, and neither of them, like, that dog is loves my wife to death. Banjo was a great dog, but he just loved running off. So we'd constantly have to, you know, we'd get, I'd be on Craigslist in Marysville, Washington, 20 miles north, and somebody would have my dog. And uh, that was a real story. We went up there, and the guy was really hoping that Banjo was his dog because his wife had made him give away a dog that looked just like that. And we were like, no, sorry. Oh, Banjo. The dates don't line up. We the had Banjo since he was a puppy. dog. And he was very disappointed that somebody actually answered the ad that his wife had made him place. Oh. 
But yeah, both this, that's an example of a dog that figured out how to open the fence just so he could have the fun of running away. And as a kid, you didn't have uh, you, you didn't bond with any of the Yappy Terriers? Not really. Uh, the Yorkshire Terriers are not a, a boy's best friend. You know, I the little not. rascals don't hang out with a Yorkshire Terrier. And that was what Barney was to me. I mean, if there'd been a fishing hole, I would have been down there. I've got all these pictures of me in like white tank tops, hanging out with Barney, my arms around his neck, kissing him on the ear. And I really, you know, he and I were, were had that kind of relationship, but you thought not. All he need, needed was somebody to feed him and the slightly pro- better spaghetti. The problem was as a third grader, that girl and I then couldn't, like, that couldn't have been my first kiss because she was so embarrassed for me. Wow. You know, I couldn't, like, go over there and be like, hi, let's go. So Barney, also a terrible wingman. Yeah, right. I mean, he just made that whole relationship even more awkward than it was. The stereotype of dogs is that they're faithful. I mean, the common dog name Fido means I am faithful. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's Semper Fidelis. And there, we tell many stories about dogs that are just exceedingly loyal to their masters. I guess that's why they domesticated, we domesticated them, right? They were, well, right. Uh, cats will betray you at every turn, but your dog is Supposedly dogs will not. You know, this is a stereotype or a, a trope that goes all the way back to Homer. You know, Odysseus leaves Ithaca, fights in the Trojan War for 10 years, then takes 10 years getting home. Right. Because... You know, sure, you he's got to, all those other adventures to do. You try to get home at the end of the work day, and there's <laughs> Cyclopses and, you know, yeah. traffic's backed all the way up to Scylla uh-huh. and Charybdis in the States of Messina. everywhere, right and left. Your crewmen turning into pigs. So, you know, 20 years later, he finally gets home, and he's in disguise, of course. Right, uh, that's be, what you do. It's, uh, the, it's like those scenes where the returning servicemen kind of sneak into their house during a birthday party. and It's true. We've totally brought this back, yeah. this idea that you should traumatize your children as much <laughs> as possible when you get home from Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Daddy's going to be in your closet wearing your Frankenstein mask. <laughs> uh, but Odysseus invented this, but he had to because uh, there were many suitors mm. trying to marry Penelope. And she was getting up to all kinds of hijinks. She would, she would say, I'll marry you when I finish this tapestry. And then she'd get up all night and unravel the tapestry. Yeah, that's how they do it. They trick you with the, with the uh, tapestry that never finishes. So Penelope is very loyal. But even more loyal was Odysseus's dog, Argos. He shows up in disguise and he's like, hey, who's, this, who's that dog sitting over there? He's some, some old dog sitting over on the manure pile, like sitting in a bunch of donkey poop. Right. And uh, wearing the hair shirt, right? <laughs> He'll never experience a love. I think the dog always has a hair shirt. Dogs are wearing t- hair shirts 24 seven. Well, that's the myth at least. And, uh, you know, whoever he's talking to says, oh yeah, that dog's never been happy since uh, his master Odysseus went away to war. And Odysseus can't break character. He can't be like, it's Argos, my faithful hound, because that'll immediately blow his cover. Right. So Odysseus has to just be like, play it cool and like nod. What's up? And Argos is just too old. So, so Argos doesn't recognize him. Argos does, but he's 20. Like, what's he going to do? Oh, oh, so he recognizes him by scent. Because 20 in, in human years is, uh, you know. Right. That's, that's 7,000 in dog that's years. a 140-year-old dog. And sitting on that manure power pile, he <laughs> right. probably has a tumor the size of a volleyball in him. Maybe Odysseus doesn't want his donkey poop-covered <laughs> dog to come over and lick his... By the way, the thing about dogs aging seven years for every human year is not real. Did you know that? Well, explain, because I think of it as the most real thing. 
<laughs> you, like I, you, you, you're hoping that we will make these entries so that you can, the future could base a religion on on that precept. I mean, I base all my decisions on uh, translating things into dog years. So I'm like, how many dog years is this going to take? Let's see. So this car loan is 35 dog years. Yeah. Wait, or am I dividing by seven? Well, it just it, it doesn't track real well, uh, you know, because dogs reach maturity by the time they're one years old. Right, uh, which is not the case of humans that right. they reach maturity at seven years old. Right. So, a do- you know, a dog ages like 15 years in its first year and then nine years in its second year uh-huh. and then about five human years for every year thereafter. So it's kind of a sliding scale. Oh, I get it. I get it. And then four years when they're six years old <laughs> or and then there's one year where they just age one year. If you pull a, a, volley- a tumor the size of a volleyball <laughs> out of your dog's spleen, it ages about 30 years, I okay, think. Okay, I get it how. I get it how it works. But uh, so Argos, you know, lifts his ears and wags his tail, which is about all he's got into him. And Odysseus sort of gives him the little heads up and heads into the palace to, to kick some suitor ass. I mean, you have to wonder whether Argos feels like that was worth it. <laughs> Sit on a dung pile for 20 years. And then that's, that's kind of the, well, here's what Homer payoff. says. Here's what Homer says. After Odysseus goes into the palace, Argos immediately passed into the darkness of death. Now that he had fulfilled his destiny of faith and seen his master once more after 20 years, he was hanging on on donkey poop for 20 years just so he could just a nod. Like, sup. Hey, you, you, uh, you came back. Wow. Into the darkness of death, into the wine, dark sea, <laughs> into the wine, dark donkey poop. I feel sank Argos. I feel like that was like a fool's bargain for Argos. He could have been frolicking. He could have found a new master like Barney did. He could have gone off with some cute little girl from Ithaca. What is the reward of that faith? I mean, that's kind of like Queen Victoria wearing all black for the rest of her life, mourning her lost prince. I think we're just meant to admire it. We're not supposed to see it from the dog's point of view. I see, I see. Maybe the ancient Greeks were less likely to anthropomorphize their doggos and their puppers than these millennials we have today. I do feel like a lot of those stories are seen only from the perspective of the protagonist. Because it is really nice for Odysseus. Hey, check it out. He remembers me. Sup? Finger finger guns to Argos? Okay, I'm going to go have to shoot an arrow through some axe handles now and get my wife back. Sure, over here Penelope is unraveling her, her skirts, and over here my dog is waiting on a dung pile like... He's the hero in everyone's eyes. He hasn't seen his wife in 20 years. I mean, he's probably been, you know, he's been getting it on the regular from a variety of Mediterranean sorceresses. Hard to say for sure. But still, he'd rather see his, I, I don't We don't talk about his faith, right? We don't talk about his fidelity. Right. Like in, right. in olden times, just as now, the woman <laughs> is expected to unravel her tapestry <laughs> while Odysseus goes around just, um, you know, pursuing every one-eyed Cyclops woman that moves. The, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Queen Victoria because, you know, in our day, the British royal family is associated with the corgi, of right, course. I believe right. we've talked about corgis pulling the queen's funeral procession <laughs> right? when she finally goes. Corgis, some of the most ridiculous dogs. Yes. Queen Victoria preferred the Sky Terrier, a slightly less ridiculous dog. Right. Can you picture a Sky Terrier? It's a little yappy. It's got sure. kind of long, silky fur. Yeah, originally raised to chase rats into holes exactly. and then gradually grew its hair out. So it's like a hippie rat. <laughs> yeah, like all those hippies that grew up just chasing badgers and then <laughs> went out to hate Ashbury and, uh, uh-huh, and then decided they were going to live off the land. Started swaying to, to Jefferson Airplane music without their bras on. Uh, this is These are like temple dogs. In what way are they temple dogs? Well, you know, the, uh, the Tibetan... What is it? The the lapsang lapsang shih tzu. Lhasa apso. No, the lhasa lhasa apso. They're they're the small ones that yap when 
when you get past the Tibetan Mastiff or whatever. Yes. I didn't realize there were two kinds of Tibetan dogs in the scenario. There are. A the, large, scary one and then a nice one. That's right. Well, no, not nice, but like the large, scary one does the, it's the enforcer. And then the small ones are like the, the alarm. Yeah. They're the alarm and the sort of the, the patrolman. Why don't they just get a Yeti? Get a Yeti to guard your, uh, your llamasary. The thing, the thing about Yetis, I think, is that they're, you know, that they're going to do what a Yeti is going to do. Yeti's going to Yeti. <laughs> you can't, you can't domesticate. Not really. Yeti. You're, I mean, what are you going to pay a Yeti, right? <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout uh, but the sky terrier our, our future listeners are probably not familiar with because it's one of the most endangered dogs it's an iconic Scottish dog, but there are maybe only 30 to 40 purebred Sky Terriers left in the British Isles today. You've got to be kidding me. And only a few thousand worldwide. How do they keep them from becoming so inbred that they can't breathe? I think they probably don't. And that's, that's the problem that's, that's why they with all these will dogs. not survive until futurelings. You know the phenomenon of dogs. If you leave, if you leave a population of dogs like unbred by humans, un, uh, unrefined... Any population of dogs, if you if you had a Great Dane and a Shih Tzu and left them alone for a few generations, they would return to Ur Dog. Within hours, they're just they look like Australian dingoes. Yeah, every every dog is just sort of long legged, yellow colored, big eared, streets of Mumbai kind of a vibe. Right, right. I think dogs return to their natural state in fairly few generations. It's dog entropy. Yeah, and I think future dogs, who may in fact be futurelings, we've never considered that our audience is, it's true. is we just, super smart dogs. We spent about 15 minutes kind of ripping on dogs Listen, just now. Listen, sorry, dogs. You, I'm sure you guys are the loyal, faithful ones that survived the apocalypse. <laughs> sorry, future doggos. <laughs> or <laughs> puppers, if you're little. Puppers. I guess the ones who survived the apocalypse are probably not the uh, super loyal, moist-eyed companion dogs. These are the ones that were willing to eat whatever got in their way. I bet you they look like dogs from Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs, right? Like, a, like, like jackal-headed? Super jackal-headed dogs who are... Who are majestic. Don't get me wrong, guys. We love you. Super majestic and can write with pens. <laughs> but uh, but you will probably, in your in your great lineage, when you do 23andMe in your future uh, doggo <laughs> pupper land... 2% doggo. <laughs> you might find that there are some of these little Queen Victoria lapdogs in your distant that's, past. That's going to be a great novelty for them when they find out that there were Sky Terriers. She kept a bunch of Sky Terriers under her big black voluminous morning... <laughs> no, this is true. Under what? her hoop skirts at all times. There were dogs under there? Yeah, she had dogs under there. Maybe she had no legs. She was just... <laughs> 
she was just scared. <laughs> or she was sitting like cross-legged <laughs> on a pillow that was being, uh, that's why you never saw her feet move. It's a palanquin of dogs. But even before Queen Victoria, the Sky Terrier was a dog of royalty. Uh, Mary Queen of Scots loved her dog so much. Uh, according to one story, which I choose to believe, she took it actually to the executioner's, uh, not a gallows. What do, what do you call it when you get beheaded? Uh, it's not a gallows. A, a, a it's a guillotine. The, I'm sure it wasn't a guillotine. That's, well, no, it was pre-guillotine, very right? very French. It was. The headman's block or oh, the whatever. the headman's block. So she goes up the there. The chopping block. It's the chopping block. Yeah. She's, got a, she's got a little Sky Terrier. She's got a pupper under, and she, uh, under did, her skirt. Did she put the pupper up next to her neck or did she ask the, <laughs> the executioner to kill the dog first? In the story, it's way worse. And I promise I'm going to explain why I'm talking about Sky Terriers. This is eventually going to get around to Hachiko, whatever that right. is. Uh, they cut off Mary Queen of Scots's head after I'm sure she says something witty and Scottish. People are saying witty things in these beheading stories. Yeah, but she said it in such a thick brogue (laughs) that it wasn't recorded for history. Ah, my wee head, (laughs) she said. (laughs) Uh, Her uh, skirt started to rustle and people freaked out thinking that her ghost was animating her headless corpse. (laughs) It turned out that her little Sky Terrier had just hopped over between her body and her head. You know, some, oh my goodness. Uh, someplace it had, I guess, never been allowed to be before. <laughs> no matter how close their relationship. <laughs> uh, this, this is the origin of the uh, Led Zeppelin lyric. If there's a bustle in your head row. <laughs> <laughs> if there's a bustle in your head row, it might be yeah. Fido. Don't be alarmed now. Don't be alarmed now. It's just a little it's dog for a spring queen. So the Sky Terrier has a long history, but the most famous Sky Terrier in Scotland is Greyfriars Bobby. Oh, sure. Of course. The famous Greyfriars Bobby. Do you know anything about Greyfriars Bobby or are you just trying to sound knowledgeable? Uh, I wasn't even trying to sound knowledgeable. I was, I was very definitely <laughs> indicating that time. I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> this is a legend in Edinburgh, Scotland, popular throughout the late 19th century. This was a Victorian era phenomenon. Even while there's Sky Terriers scuttling around under Queen Victoria's crinolines, mm-hmm. There's a super famous dog known to everyone in the Edinburgh, the old city of Edinburgh mm-hmm. who hangs out outside Greyfriars Kirk, the chapel there. Which is Scottish for church. Yes. They do not, do not have the letter CH. Mm-hmm. If you're in Scotland and you, try to, and you try to order cheese, they'll bring you keys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there, a legend started that this a dog that was always hanging around the churchyard had belonged to a local night watchman, a, an Edinburgh policeman named... John Gray. Old old Jock Gray, they said. John Gray and o- Booby. Old Jock Gray. <laughs> they say they spell old the weird way. Old A U L D or That's is there, right. yeah, okay. Uh, every day he would he would hang out at the churchyard. The when the one o'clock We're talking about Bobby now. Sorry, we're back to Greyfriars Bobby. Uh, so the one o'clock gun would sound in Edinburgh. I guess instead of in Scotland, instead of chimes, they have It's a cannon. It's a gun, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at one o'clock, that famous cannon announced time, Bobby would leave the churchyard and go over to a local dining establishment where they would feed it scraps. He had a whole routine. But the story got around that uh, he was staying by his master's grave because when all Jack Gray passed away, you know, Bobby was just stricken and uh, just sat on his master's grave all day, except again when the one o'clock gun sounded and he was a little peckish. But is this a revisionist story? I mean, did this... This didn't follow in real time. This was something later on there that somebody noticed the dog and... Maybe I should have told it the other way. Should I have told it as if it were the real thing? Because today it is a beloved legend. To this day, the uh, there's, a, there's a, a statue of Greyfriars Bobby sitting in the cemetery. Right. He eventually died in 1872 and was buried 
mere 75 yards away from his master. So they're reunited again in death. It's clear that that, that was really his master? Well, no. Uh-huh. It is not clear. <laughs> um, and so today it's a popular tourist site. Tourists will come and rub Bobby's nose for good luck. And in this case, they're not even supposed to rub the nose anymore. They've had, they have to repaint the thing all the time. Oh, they've rubbed the nose down. Yeah, there's actually people now that stand there with whistles and will... <laughs> like referees, Ugh. and will blow a whistle on you if you try to rub surreptitiously rub nanny nose. state. Talk about your nanny state. You know, I went to the public swimming pool here, and they have so many lifeguards. It's like a, it's a major jobs program for the city of Seattle, just to have lifeguards at the swimming pool with whistles. It's a one to one ratio, telling one- you you cannot do anything. The swimming pool now is a place where you can do nothing. You have to stand stock still. (laughs) You cannot even get in the pool. Because every other thing is against somebody's rule. It's only for elderly (laughs) people to do water aerobics now. Water aerobics, yeah. But you're right. Um, There may be some revisionist history. Uh, A Swedish... British scholar. He's a he's both a rheumatologist and a writer on popular crime and medical topics. Mm-hmm. And he has written the definitive biography of Greyfriars Bobby. And his contention is that there's no way that he ever belonged to all Jock Gray, or in fact was loyal to anything except maybe the the pub that was handing out scraps at the one o'clock gun. Right, because there was 120 years that separated the two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was there even any overlap? Between Jock Gray and... Between Jock Gray's death and Greyfriars Bobby. Well, the dates work out, but the fact is there is a preceding century. For all of the 19th century, Europe was just overrun with these stories of these cemetery dogs, all of which had some story about how they belonged to some local shepherd or church warden or some mainstay of the community. And that dog was just always there. And tourists would love to visit the dogs and feed them scraps. And the fact that every cemetery had one led this guy to believe, wait a second, these were just strays who liked the cemetery because it's a quiet oasis in a, you know, in the middle of Frankfurt or Rotterdam or whatever. There's always people passing through that'll give a dog treats. And then the stories start to, oh, I always see him by this grave, you know? And of course, then the dog does stay by that grave because that's where the people come to feed him. Well, now, is this during the, also the fashionable era for those little bells that were put on top of graves to keep people from being buried alive? Oh, right. And so, and it always occurred to me, like, if you had a bell that you could ring from inside the grave to indicate that you had been falsely buried, that bell would have to connect to your coffin six feet under, meaning that to a dog's sensitive nose, perhaps they were smelling the delicious smell to a dog of a decaying corpse. And you think not necessarily it's decaying master? You think they wouldn't be that, uh, they wouldn't be that choosy? Yeah, you know, there are multiple stories, not only of dogs eating their owner's dogs eating their owners when their owners have recently passed away. They're late owners. Uh, They're late owners. Uh, But they would eat you pretty quickly after you die. Uh, They don't wait six days for you to decay uh, when they realize you're dead. Well, it's probably the second feeding time comes and goes. Uh, That one o'clock gun goes off. But there's also uh, at least one, and and I'm sure maybe uh, quite a few other examples, of dogs eating their owners when they pass out. There's a, there was a woman who like passed out drunk and her dog ate her. I, and again, I'm on this show as a, as an example of someone who does not necessarily credit dogs with, uh, with my, being the most faithful. My dog does lick my face a lot. But I'm Is saying, that like an appetizer to him? I'm saying it's one thing for your dog to run away and take up with the cute little redheaded girl that lives uh, on the other side of town. It's another thing for your dog to eat, eat you while you're not even dead. But I'm wondering whether these graveyard dogs are sensing with their noses 
uh, that the earth is bones, just right? full of like yummy, delicious bones. If old cartoons have taught me anything, it's that dogs <laughs> always just bury big, delicious bones yeah, outside. They love a bone. Well, there's definitely a chain of evidence problem. In all these stories, we have to assume that the dog somehow knows its owner is dead, follows mm-hmm. the owner to the hospital or whatever, follows it to the un- the mortuary where the corpse is presumably embalmed, and then when the corpse comes out in a casket, can still recognize it somehow. Well, these are the dogs. And that, follow it to the funeral and then to the cemetery. These are the, the cemetery haunting dogs. But there are plenty of examples like of uh, Odysseus's dog, where the dog doesn't realize the owner has died. And so isn't right. camped by a grave, but is like, appears to be waiting. Yes, there are many stories like that. There's a good old Shep from Fort Benton, Missouri, hmm. who... Uh, in that case, I think the owner the owner got, was a, got on a train, possibly in a casket in this case. I don't know. But Shep just waited by the train station every day until he got old and deaf and was finally hit by a train. This one does not have a happy no, ending. Not really. And if you go to Fort Benton, Missouri, there is a statue of old Shep with his like paws up on the rail, which strikes me as very tasteless for a dog that died hit in a train collision. Is this a rail that's currently in use or did they put a, like a special rail no. for the statue of Shep? <laughs> the, the train, that would be great. An interactive train. <laughs> the train hits the dog. The train hits every new... time the train pulls up, <laughs> it goes. <laughs> and there was a dog named Fido in Tuscany that, uh, you know, sat outside the factory every day while its owner you know, was at work. But then one day the factory was bombed and the dog just sat there forever. Uh, how long did Shep or Fido, like, what are the actual dates of their, I mean, how long do they sit waiting for their owners? These stories are up to a decade in some cases. And for in dog years, you know, even <laughs> even even these are adult dogs aging five years per year. That's That feels like 50 years, I can only imagine, to a dog. My favorite bit of Greyfriars Bobby revisionism has to do with <laughs> the fact that this author uh, believes that there was a switch, that Bobby was so good for the tourist trade that the local pub owner and the local church warden, Sexton or whatever, conspired to keep Bobby alive because Bobby, in the record, lived from 1855 to 1872. You know, the 17 or 18 years, very long. That e- is a long Even time. for a small dog. And there's some evidence that Bobby is looking very long in the tooth in these pictures in 1867. Mm-hmm. But around May or June, suddenly there are lots of photos where he starts to look livelier and there's accounts of him jumping up on people. So Bobby ages in reverse in the spring of 1867. And that's where this author believes, sort of in the, in the manner of Paul is dead, <laughs> that a, a younger... Spryer Bobby got swapped in. Well, and that's the story of Lassie, right? Or Rin Tin Tin. There were several of these dogs. Oh, hey, Lassie even played Greyfriars Bobby. Say what now? There is a, there, the story of Greyfriars Bobby has been turned into a film several times. Disney made one that's all Disneyed up where there's a shepherd and a, I don't know, a landowner fighting over who Bobby loves more. Before the Disney movie, there was an older story of the Greyfriars Bobby tale called Challenge to Lassie. They had turned the Sky Terry into a rough collie, the better to have Pal, the mm-hmm. star of the Lassie movies, play Greyfriars Bobby. Mm-hmm. But possibly the most famous story along these lines is a little more recent, so the provenance is a little better. And that's the story of Hachiko in Tokyo. Hmm. If you've ever, you've never been to Shibuya Station, is that right? The big... Well, you say that with a lot of... Uh, I feel like you're on the record uh, as telling the future audience that you've never been to Japan. So far, I've not been to Japan, although that uh, hopefully is going to change this year. By the time you listen to this, Future Links, John has been to Japan many times. He's yeah. beloved. Yep. 
Uh, There's a statue the, of me next to the train station in Japan. They, as you tried to uh, tried to do a Twitter meetup and nobody came, so you just waited faithfully by that train station for years. I'm going to be the one that introduces <laughs> avocados to Japan. I'm sure that they have avocados. They do, but they cost sixty eight dollars a piece. I'm going to be the one that introduces cheap guacamole to Japan. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start hachiko was an akita dog beautiful oh they are so beautiful. japanese dog in the uh, 1920s who every day would show up at the Shibuya train station, which today, by the way, is kind of the big Times Square of Japan. Like, if you've ever seen the shot of Tokyo with, like, animated dinosaurs walking across the shop windows. I have not seen that, but yeah, I get it. I ima get imagine, it. so it's, it's just the Blade runner part of, of This Tokyo. is where uh, the, the light changes, and all of a sudden yes. the street is full of 50,000 people. It's a bit triangular crosswalk. All cars stop at once, and it's just nuts, because there's three, there's three sides. So some people are going from A to B, right. or B to A. Some people are going from... A to sure, C or C the A, hypotenuse. But, but there's hypotenuse people. Right. You got the high pedestrians. So this is the big, this is the this Times, is Times Square. Square yeah. And there was a there was room in this whole hullabaloo for a, an Akita to just sit quietly? In the 1920s, I imagine it was a sleepy, peaceful train stop, uh, you know, several stations down from the center of Tokyo. His master was an academic who taught at Tokyo University. I think he taught agriculture. And this is documented. This is a real dog with a real owner. Yes. This was documented several years later by one of his students. So it's still retrospective, yeah, but it's a right. little it's a little less revisionist, and one would hey, hope. geographical, perhaps. I, one would think, you know, in, in Japan, students do love their professors, maybe. Right. Um, but back then, you did not go to Shibuya for, for karaoke, is what I'm saying. I see. Although that's what, that's what I did, by the way, when I was there. We went to the karaoke place from Lost in Translation. Oh, you didn't go in and out on a train. You went there to fulfill some sort of... Scarlett Johansson fantasy. It's a Bill Murray fantasy in my case. But okay. yeah, we, we went to the same exact room. And they do have More Than This by Roxy Music and Brass and Pocket, the Chrissy Hines song. Is there a plaque outside that says, as seen in Lost in Translation? No, but the uh, the people on the desk clearly know if you're like, can we get 600 or 601 or whatever it is? I think that sounds about right. 501 mm -hmm. or 502, they'll be like, ah, yes, they must have a steady stream of white people. Right. They did not have the third song he sings, which is... What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? That's not on their on their uh, playlist. In our era, no. I can't promise to the future. You know, karaoke playlists do change. It's crazy, I mean, that you would have such a money-making opportunity and not provide all three of the hits from the film. Maybe Nick Lowe is not a big draw at, uh, at karaoke. It might be, or they might be making plenty of money just serving their regular <laughs> customers, and it's not like they charge more. I'm sure the margin there is the drinks, not the, yeah. not the number of Nick Lowe deep cuts. But back before it was, a, Wait you know. Wait a minute, would you describe peace, love, and understanding as a Nick Lowe deep cut? I think that's probably right up there in the top five. 
but only because Elvis Costello covered it, right? I mean, yeah. Is it even a single for Nick? Like, I, you know, it's certainly not cruel to be kind. Okay, you're right. I don't know. I actually do not know if Nick Lowe ever even put it on a record, although I think he did. Yeah, and it probably wasn't that big of a hit for him. Certainly not as big as Elvis. I'm not even going to look it up. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to let the future not know. Let's like, just let that ride. No, they have access to the internet. They can look they, it up for themselves. Do they, though? What if this is the only document they have, hmm. and it's been a huge mystery in their culture whether Nick Lowe ever released his version of Misunderstanding <laughs> I bet as you the futurelings are not going to spend as much time collecting seven-inch vinyl records as we did. In the post-apocalyptic future, they know that a peace, love, and understanding did not work out. There's a lot of other past culture for them to consume before they get all the way down to Nick Lowe. They've got at least seven years of Curb Your Enthusiasm to binge. Yep. They uh, have to listen to Simply Red all the way through <laughs> to decide not to do that again. So back, but back before it was a nightlife spot, this was, uh, I think, a sleepier train station. And every day, Hachiko, this beautiful Akita, would sit waiting for his master to come home from class. And no one stole Hachiko, which seems like what would happen now. Yeah, Somebody could, would say, look at this beautiful Akita. That's a $3,000 dog or yeah, whatever an Akita right. costs. No, he could just hang out. And unfortunately, one day, his master uh, had a cerebral hemorrhage in the middle of a lecture oh. and died. And as a result, did not come on the, home on the train that day. Oh, dear. So Hachiko wanders home, comes back the next day. Oh. Wanders home, comes back the next day. And, of course, his master does not come. Oh, there's a solitary tear running down my otherwise implacable face. That's the beautiful thing about these stories is it's like the greatest dramatic irony you can have because the main character is unable to... We all, the audience, know this guy's never coming back. The dog is the only person in the story who does not know what's going on, who cannot understand what has happened. And this confirms what we all hope, which is that dogs don't just have a self-interested connection with us because we feed them. Sure. They actually are capable of love and capable of fidelity. Real affection to a singular person. Right. Because Hachiko had plenty of local restaurateurs who would give him delicious Japanese street food. And he became a hero in his own life. He was recognized as this faithful dog, even as he lived. He was, but apparently it's a bit controversial. He lived in 1935. So every day, nine years, nine months, and 15 days, he mm. was hanging out at the Shibuya train station. It's a little controversial because apparently there are those in the area who just thought of him as some sort of annoying stray. Right. And it was only when this professor's former student wrote this glowing newspaper profile of him that he became this beloved symbol of loyalty. Right. And guess what? In, in 1930s Japan, you know, loyalty to the emperor was being heavily promoted in the press. Right. So Hachiko becomes a tool of the imperial establishment. Oh, interesting. To describe a kind of like intrinsic character that the nation had. Yeah, a Japanese ideal of just being faithful to your to your beloved master. So what this in really this case, was about emperor, was it in, uh, like ultimately invading China. Yes. And basically, Hachiko caused World War II. Uh, I see. Without Hachiko, no Bataan Death March, no Pearl Harbor. Once again, so it's basically like uh, Mussolini's Golden Canary. Wait, Mussolini had a beloved canary that waited for him every day after work? No, sadly, I just made that up. Oh, <laughs> I was, this was, this was going to be the most exciting <laughs> moment of the podcast for me. Everyone in the future just leaned forward. <laughs> World War II is, is just the product of these two stupid animals? <laughs> Um, but after uh, almost 10 years of faithful waiting or perhaps annoying local vendors with his lounging, right. um, Hachiko died. But in his lifetime, he was recognized as a, as a local fixture that people would come over and pet. So an autopsy was performed. He was mounted uh, and became a taxidermy exhibit. And his organs were actually autopsied to see how he had died. 
Oh, I thought they were looking for the faithful gland. <laughs> we have managed to isolate the faithfulness gene. <laughs> he had a tumor the size of a beach ball, and it was pressing against his fidelity gland. Now all Japanese school children will be injected with dog hormones every day at crab school and love the emperor 15% more. No, they found roundworms, disappointingly. Oh, boo. And so they decided that he had been killed of a, a parasitic infection. Because some local local butcher gave him uh, some gross meat. Well, the funny thing is there were also four yakitori skewers found in his stomach. <laughs> Not really. There really were. What? And I, I guess if you're performing an autopsy, it'd be very easy to say, well, clearly you're not supposed to eat the skewer, Hachiko. He, he'd eaten four giant wood skewers and survived it. A symbol of loyalty, but also gluttony, apparently. Yeah, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, in 2011, so his organs are still preserved in a kind of a, a neighborhood medical museum in Tokyo. Very much like an Egyptian a dog that's been eviscerated, but all of its organs kept in jars. Sure. The yeah. urge to mummify is very strong mm -hmm. in our species. And in 2011, some Japanese scientists did take a closer look at the, at the tissues to right. see what, what had really killed Hachiko. Uh, they obviously were not very busy. <laughs> well, in the succeeding century, Hachiko had become an icon. He still sits outside Shibuya Station. It's one of the most common meeting places in, I think, oh. it's, I think it's kind of the canonical meeting place, you know, like, I'll meet you at Hachiko. And you know? do you rub his nose? Uh, I, it's a constant stream of photo ops I see. when I've been there people putting their little dog to pose on top of Hachiko oh, or alongside yeah. Hachiko because you want to have a dog who's as loyal as Hachiko. But when they did the autopsy in 2011, they found that not only were there signs of parasitic infection, but also Hachiko had tumors in his heart and lungs. Oh dear. So it could have been cancer. And did he lay down and die there at his post or did he die elsewhere? Yeah, he was just found on a nearby street by some locals who recognized him. Hmm. But according to the autopsy, whoever fed him the Akitori skewers is off the hook because there was cancer and roundworms anyway. So, you know, all these stories have gotten a little better in time because it flatters us to think that our animals love us so much that they, uh, you know, that they would wait years just in the chance that we'd step off a train. Yeah, what does this do for us? I mean, what is, does it just confirm our relationship with dogs or is it some other kind of, does it pet us in a different way? Why does it matter to us? Well, you know, in our time, futurelings, dog ownership is on the rise in oh, America yeah. pretty drastically. In 1990, there were, there were 53 million dogs in America and today there's 83 million. Whoa. And uh, if you look at my Instagram feed alone, <laughs> right, there's 83 million dogs on my phone right I have now. 83 million pictures of people taking pictures of their dogs. Like their dog's face is supposed to communicate to us what it communicates to them. And there's a couple of reasons for this. The baby boomers are getting old and want companions mm -hmm. and often they'll have multiple dogs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got elderly folks with several dogs, but also you've got youngsters. You've got generation Y kids who have decided to have families later or not at all. Right. And having that baby is that moment where you become the center of someone's universe, right? Right. That's a very flattering feeling. They look at you. Finally, someone's looking at you that, with it, love. It really squeezes your importance gland, uh -huh. which, is, which is near the faithfulness gland. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it probably makes you a better person. It gives you somebody to care for. It's, it's instant responsibility. Right. You have to go home at night. You can't just wander the streets high like, on drugs. High on drugs and yakitori skewers. Yeah. But, you know, with people having babies later and later or fewer and fewer babies, you know, you have uh, whole generations of here in Seattle, single tech guys who all have a beautiful mixed breed dog of some kind mm -hmm. that they can 
take to work and you know amazon's got just thousands of dogs there every day just hanging out in people's cubicles oh you can take your dog to work at amazon yes uh, and i think there are tens of thousands of Amazon employees who have permission to do so. On an, on any given day, there are just thousands of dogs wow. at the Amazon campus. One more reason I don't work at Amazon. <laughs> yeah, all the all the dogs have been running away from you <laughs> to find someone with better spaghetti. I I mean I feel like a barking dog in a neighborhood is really the least neighborly thing you can do as a person. We have a little yappy dog, and every time I tell the neighbors what kind of dog we have, they say, oh, that's your dog. Oh, God. We can hear that. Oh, arf. But it's, uh, it, you know, it flatters us to, to think that we're the center of the world, and I assume that's the reason why young single people, buy, they want to have somebody to come home to, but, you know, you can't lock a baby in a crate all day or bring it to your cubicle, really. You really have to think, is my little cubicle dog going to wait patiently by my cubicle for a decade after I die? Or is it going to eat my face when I come home drunk? I also sort of wonder what kinds of animals our future uh, listeners are domesticating. You know, once we got dogs and cats out of saber-toothed tigers and wolves, you know, we kind of took a break. We haven't been doing much domesticating lately. Like lap bears? Sure. They could have super cute uh, miniature alligators <laughs> in the future. I guess it's all the exotic people today buying iguanas or whatever. That's the beginning of the next big domestication <laughs> boom. Uh, I think it's going to be purse elk. It's going to be ferrets, right? <laughs> ferrets are already domesticated. Are they? Well, I mean, they live on little leashes. Anytime you see a goth street kid, they have a ferret. So Portland in the future will just be overrun with the ferret people. What's some animal that is not wild, but which people keep anyway irresponsibly? Hmm. I guess iguanas, right? Iguanas, giant boa constrictors. Boa constrictors, that's it. Tarantulas. We're going to domesticate all the boa constrictors and tarantulas, and those are the the cute, beloved companions of the future. Oh, it is Blade Runner. It is. Go home and pet your spider and or snake, future listener, and remember Hachiko. And that concludes Hachiko, entry 559.PR2006, certificate number 24139 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, our tweets are archived at, at Omnibus Project. We also have a Instagram and Facebook presence. Hopefully these words are just gobbledygook to you. Also at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Please, please, even in the future after we're long dead, follow us because our follower count is how we will ever get tied ads. Our follower count was really going to take a hit in the asteroid collision. So right. please, please, please help repopulate our social media. Yeah, please, please followerships. do. Uh, I also maintain an, a personal Instagram account at John Roderick. Nice. It's great. A lot of dog pictures. I don't even have a dog. I just take other people's dog pictures, repurpose them. My little doggos. And, and puppers. puppers. Uh, our address for email was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, uh, we speak to you from your distant past. And of course, we have no idea how long our doggos and puppers will survive. Hopefully the words do not survive long. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you're yeah. speaking to us from the last, we're speaking to you from the last few weeks of doggo and pupper 
being a thing. I hope it, it, it is gone immediately, as well as all of Reddit along with it. I guess uh, possibly our testosterone will drop so much due to using words like doggo and pupper that there will be no future generations. <laughs> we hope and pray that there will be no catastrophe that ends our culture, but we are not hopeful. We are not sanguine. We no. think the worst may come soon. It's probably going to happen. And if it does, this recording, like every single recording in this authoritative reference book, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>